0: Take a network break. The virtual donuts are ready. The virtual coffee's hot, so let's tackle some tech news. We discuss Broadcom and Dell squaring off new APs and switches from extreme networks, whether big promises are going to be kept on U.S. chip manufacturing, new research on return-to-office mandates, and more. Uh, We don't have an ad today. Uh, We do have a sponsored Tech Bytes. After the news, I talk with Fortinet about Wi-Fi 7 and Fortinet's new Wi-Fi 7 APs. We get into new features and capabilities in the latest standard and discuss things to consider on the security and wired sides of the house if you do upgrade Uh, And we have to have an announcement. We are launching a new security podcast. It's going to be called the Packet Protector. It's starting February 13th. I am going to be joined by co-host Jennifer J.J. Manella. J.J. is a security consultant, an instructor, and an author. She really knows her stuff. We're going to cover topics at the intersection of networking and security. We'll speak with experts and practitioners and keep you abreast of the latest threats, exploits, and attack techniques. The show is going to be available on PacketPushers.net or in your favorite podcatcher app. And if you're already subscribed to the fat pipe from pack Pushers, it will arrive in your feed automatically. Uh, Protector starts February 13th, so we hope you will come and check it out.
1: Yeah, it should be interesting because you've already got a few shows in the can. Have you, um, have you ramped up the rabid hatred of cybersecurity professionals that I have, or is that just me? That's just you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still sympathetic to their plight. <laughs> I mean, cybersecurity is a bit tough, but some of their subculture is a bit, uh, a bit overblown, in my opinion. So hopefully, you managed to break through some of that.
0: Luckily, JJ is not part of the subcultures I know you're referring to. So yeah, <laughs> it's all <yeah>. good. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay. No, but maybe that will change over time. We'll see. But we're only like three or four episodes in, so
1: yeah. That, you know, yeah. it's usually the cynicism starts to set in after a couple of hundred shows. <laughs> That's right. It will creep in eventually. <laughs> I'm sure. For sure, for sure.
0: (laughs) Anyway, this is network break, so let's do that. Uh, We're going to start with an FU. Last week, we talked about new products from Juniper, including new Marvis Minis. These are software profiles you can run on your MIST APs to run synthetic tests of your wireless network. A listener wrote in to share their perspective. They got to be an early tester. Uh, They said what they truly like about it is that it's fully automated. No human action is required by default, and you can customize them. They're also not being charged a separate license, unlike other vendors in the space, so you get this Marvis Mini essentially free. Uh, there's no additional hardware required. And this happens all the way to the edge of the network on the AP uh, instead of on the router. In conclusion, this person writes, it's completely hands-off if you want it to be. And the data from this goes right into the solution for all that artificial intelligence network goodness. So I guess a, a vote of yes for the Marvis minis.
1: If you've been listening to us for the last five years, we've talked about digital experience monitoring with a number of different vendors, including small companies that were then went on to be acquired by the bigger companies. So um, digital experience monitoring is this idea that there's an agent somewhere out on the edge of the network, and it runs us—you uh, know—runs at scheduled intervals, either scheduled or at intervals that you know you click a button and say run this test now. But it's not inside the router; it's on the other side. It's like right at the edge, as far as you can go. And in this case, they're saying put it inside of the Wi-Fi. That idea is not new. That new—that idea has been around for thirty years. But what's different now is the idea of having agents everywhere. And this idea of having Minus everywhere is that Juniper did buy a Dem company a while ago. What they've done here is said, we need to just give this away for free. And I think that's really important because one of the problems with owning a network is that pinging something doesn't really tell you much, right? Right. And g- getting visibility via NetFlow really also doesn't tell you much. It tells you so it gives you an extra chance. What you actually want is something that says, I've got a traffic profile out here that's running bad. We then ran a test using our, you know, using the software that did a synthetic transaction against the Oracle database, or ran a transaction against SAP, and we can confirm that the user experience is good, but something is bad. Now, that's what you want as an operator. You want to flag it up with useful information, and you can't do that using NetFlow. Remember, NetFlow is 30 years old. It's in the network. It's kind of dumb. It's kind of the worst of all solutions except for all the other choices, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yes. And, and, and so I, I'm all about dem. I think in a, as we go forward in the next five to 10 years, everybody's going to have some sort of digital experience monitoring type of capability. And that also feeds into this um, digital experience twin that we're talking, we talk about, we're seeing more and more vendors talk about digital experience twins. And this is the idea that you take your digital experience monitoring, you feed it into a model And you can then say, oh, I can see that the experience at this branch looks like this. And then because I have it modeled in software that the response profile looks like this and it's a combination of synthetic transactions and also some usually some telemetry as well, then I'm now in a situation to simulate what each user is experiencing at different parts of my network. That is what you want,
0: Yes.
1: If they're at home and the synthetic transactions show that it's not working well, well, they might not be on a good provider. Is there something you can do about that? Maybe, maybe not, but at least you can go to the person and say, Yes, we can see that your home network connection isn't good enough here. We don't have any control over the connection. You either go to, you know, maybe you say to them, You either go to an office you know, some sort of serviced office, or maybe you come into the office, depending, you know, for the days that you want a good transaction, but there's nothing we can do for you. Replacing your laptop won't fix it. You know, giving you a better Wi-Fi won't fix it. It's that, right? How do you diagnose that in a world where, you know, there's so much more complexity and so many more overlays and you've got SD WAN and you've got VPN, all that stuff. So that's why I think the Marvus Mini is probably on the right track. Yeah,
0: although it's not quite that dem use case of the home user. It's for your corporate YLAN. Uh, looking at YLAN performance specifically, but still, I think a good idea. And I, I do think Juniper smart to make it easy to use and free uh, just to add to the value of that Mist AP, which they mm. want to bring you into their whole artificially intelligence powered uh, network itself. So uh, definitely relying on hmm. YLAN as kind of that, uh, that wedge to get them into organizations. I wonder
1: so. if the data is also being uploaded and fed into Marvis.
0: Absolutely. Yep.
1: You know, if 100%. they're giving it away for free, you know, all that transaction data, all that you know intelligence can be fed into the ai data lake and maybe yes. that's that's the key getting the more key. data to do the analysis
0: yes yep and you can also launch a packet capture from from this agent as mm-hmm. well right on the, the ap2 if you want to
1: yeah if you did i used diets. to worry about that but clearly nobody cares so <laughs> i can't get i don't care anymore <laughs>
0: All right. Well, we appreciate the follow up. Uh, if you've got corrections, comments, or just want to say hello, you can reach us at packapushersnet slash FU. The FU is for follow up. Uh, let's dive into the news. We're going to start uh, with Broadcom and Dell Technologies. Uh, Dell Technologies has notified Broadcom that it is terminating its agreement to resell and distribute VMware products. Uh, for its part, Broadcom says it's resetting its OEM agreements with Dell HP. E, Lenovo, and other hardware providers uh, in an interview with CRN, a Broadcom VP said that the company is eliminating thousands of SKUs, special deals on pricing, and other bargains and discounts that have accumulated over the years between VMware and its OEMs. The goal is a more streamlined, predictable deal structure.
1: Yeah, so this sort of turned into a bit of a kerfuffle. When I saw this announcement, it was actually an SEC notice that the, that Dell signaled to the SEC, Yeah. which automatically implies that the board would have cited this. You don't send a notice to the SEC without board approval, right? Right. And, and all that you don't publish, not when you're a you know huge company like Dell, you don't want the SEC hating on you. And so it sort of triggered a bit of a kerfuffle what's going on here. And it wasn't till several days later that I was finally able to get to the bottom here um, because this is obviously significant. And it turns out um, there's an article on CRN.com, computer yes. reseller news. For some reason, they've got access to Dell that I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not exactly like CRN is actually the the, the leading t- technology paper, uh, but it turns out that VMware had unique OEM agreements with each of its partners. Mm-hmm. And um, that the suggestion that that this person from VMware is trying to put out there or what the, the message they're trying to, the PR, the spin, if you want, is that every vendor had a different contract. So VMware wasn't like, this is our OEM agreement and everybody gets to sign it. VMware grew organically. And over that period of time, uh, you know, HPE got a certain deal, Cisco got a certain deal, you know, and so on. And, you know, Lenovo got a certain deal and all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, at some point, Dell, you know, pretty much Dell bought VMware and owned it. It's not exactly what happened because they were two separate companies and Dell owned all the shares in VMware, but they never, you know, made VMware a division of But at the time that Dell owned VMware, they got VMware to give them a highly preferential OEM agreement. Yes. So Dell was appointed to be a distributor. And this really upset everybody else, of course. So HPE, Cisco, (laughs) Lenovo all complained that Dell could always undercut them in the big deals because they had that extra three percent. Yeah. That's right. And it turns out that Dell was a distributor for VMware rather than just a reseller. Normally VMware would sell the licenses to a distributor and then Dell would buy them from the distributor and then sell them to their direct customers. In this case, Dell was a distributor. So when it did the distribution, it got the percentage margin that the distributor gets, which is anything from 2 to 5%, 3 to 5%, something like that. And so now you have a situation where Broadcom's gone, this is all too hard. Uh, that's well, this is what they're trying to say. This is all too hard. We just terminated all of our agreements. This happened back in January, and now all vendors are on an equal footing when reselling VMware products. Yes. So that's the story, right? But now the question here is: everybody's on an equal footing. All of these vendors, like HP, GreenLake, and Dell, Apex, and vXrail, and all the hyperconverged infrastructure platforms that are out there—you know, all the bundles that 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 have got. Here's the question that I want to know: is is Broadcom? committing to support them like it did before. So keep in mind that, you know, Dell has a lab. It's got hundreds of engineers. Every time it wants to put out a vSAN update, it has to go and run testing on it to make sure that this piece of hardware is blessed to run with VMware. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're not making that profit margin anymore, what's your motivation to keep making these products? What's your motivation to keep running these labs and go through this validation process, right? I've always found the validation extremely like disruptive. Like what's the point? If your hardware is not compatible, don't make it. Right? (laughs) It shouldn't, we shouldn't have to go through a validation process to say this particular server with these particular hard drives and this particular is, is actually validated to work. It should be like I get in the car and it should work. And I've said this several times, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing, you know, are we in a situation where these OEM deals start to fall apart? Because now Broadcom is saying we don't want to be doing anything that's not core. So are these OEM arrangements core, do you think?
0: Well, I think they are because obviously you have to run VMware on something. So Broadcom needs the OEMs. The OEMs, of course, need Broadcom because they want to sell to their customers the servers that, and uh, storage that their customers will then use to run the VMware on. So mm-hmm. there is a relationship here. There is value to them, I think. Yeah, but uh, if you're th- a customer
1: th- and you're now buying directly from Broadcom, there's a disconnect, right? <sighs> So now I've got a situation where I'm buying this VMware license to run on this server, but I've got no guarantee that they work together anymore because they're not the same company and no no more one throat to choke.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I guess you didn't necessarily have that if you were buying HPE servers and running VMware on top of it or Cisco UCS and running VMware either because it was done Well, you did because they
1: guaranteed that they would work together one throat to choke. The OEM would take the first call and be able to back it off to VMware. Now, if you're Broadcom and you're like throwing out all the headcount, getting rid of all this tech support, getting rid of all the whatever to cut costs and drive your profit margins up by 300% and the only thing that's left is a really, really stripped down sales team and the the, the products, the, the next generation of products, what's, you know, are they even doing that anymore?
0: Well maybe Broadcom is putting your proposition to the test that uh, all of this uh, integration testing maybe isn't all that necessary anyway like it's 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 <laughs> well known the CPU the, uh, the the CPUs are well known if the hypervisor works on the CPU it's probably going to be fine so we don't need to do a mm. lot of integration testing I don't know maybe that's yeah that's what's happening I the thing is I when this news first broke it was uh, Possible to read it as Dell is walking away from VMware. I don't think that's really what it is. It's just Mm-mm. everybody is renegotiating their positions and jockeying for uh, the best possible outcome for themselves. Uh, so uh, yeah, that yeah, this is what it's about. It everyone's coming back to the negotiating table to see what they can get.
1: And I must say, like the cost of VMware pre-sales, that like the amount of hours that people put into buying VMware and working out what license and what is this, and the resellers have to do, you know tens thirty you know weeks of work just to close a deal around a VMware licensing so it is a good thing that Broadcom's changing all this up yes and trying to rat you know rationalize all this and make it you know more like a supermarket yes. instead of uh, a corporate bazaar you know right. where you haggle you <laughs> right. haggle with each each division of the bit of VMware yes uh, so it'll be interesting to see how it works out but I also want to point out that this is also an example of customers are not where we are with Broadcom at the moment and with VMware is that customers are not significant. The only thing that matters is corporate profits. Broadcom has to generate profits out of this. And what customers' needs or customer satisfaction is absolutely not a priority. It's on the list. Nobody's ignoring it. But right now, Broadcom has an absolute commitment to generating three times more profit out of this by the end of 2025. Yes. And you know, if you're saying, oh, but that's not good for customers- you should bite your tongue and slap yourself because that is not what's happening <laughs> and that's true for all the companies across the whole of the stock exchange right now all of the US tech companies the only thing that matters right now is the bottom line they don't care about customers they will happily burn 5% of their customer base if it if it puts 10% on the bottom line they will fire 10% of their sale or, you know of their headcount if that means getting you know another 10% on the bottom line or getting the share price up or whatever right there is no question that that's where we are right now so stop saying I'm a customer and I matter because you sure as heck don't. I mean,
0: I would respectfully submit that that's always been the case, but um, tech companies w- had enough sense to pretend like they actually cared about the customer. Well, nobody's now. even saying it anymore. <laughs> I know. <that's, laughs> which is <laughs> nice. And so the mask is off now, yeah. finally and fully. The mask is off, which is yeah, a good thing right. for everybody.
1: Yes. Let, let's be honest. Let's go forward with, with our eyes open, right? Yes. Let's I just not have it. any... <laughs> <laughs>
0: Anyway, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, we will move on. Extreme Networks has announced new Wi-Fi 7 access points. Wi-Fi 7 is the latest iteration of the standard from uh, the Wi-Fi Alliance. Uh, Extreme's also rolling out a line of cloud-managed Ethernet switches. Um, Extreme's new Wi-Fi 7 AP is operating in the 6 gigahertz spectrum. That's what came in with Wi-Fi 6E. Extreme's fishing it for high bandwidth, high latency sensitive applications and IT use cases. Uh, the switches are part of a new 4000 series family. There's the 4120. It comes in 24 and 48 port options with multi-gigs speeds of 1 and 2.5 gig and supports 90 watt uh, power over ethernet there's also the 4220 series with 8 to 48 port options and one 2.5 and 5 gig throughput choices and it also supports 90 watts of power over ethernet
1: i, I don't really know what to say about this tree because my i am as yet on the cynical side of wi-fi 7 now there's a show at the end i wasn't on the recording with Fortinet talking about wi-fi 7 so maybe you know more to me but What I know is that the IEEE has not yet ratified the appropriate 802.11 standard around Wi-Fi 7, and apparently it may not do for at least another year. Mm -hmm. So, however, there is a Wi-Fi committee, and that's the one that owns the WIFI branding, Yes, which is not the IEEE, but it is a pre-committee committee, committee, if you know what I mean. The Wi-Fi alliance, yeah. Yeah, the Wi-Fi Alliance. Well, you've got much better branding than the IEEE, um, and they've decided to approve the term Wi-Fi 7 for the current state of the standard. So they're saying what happens between here and the end of next year isn't going to be significant. We want to get out there and rah, rah, rah up the Wi-Fi, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as I can tell, Wi-Fi 7 isn't a killer killer use case, right? It feels to me like somebody wants to rush out Wi-Fi 7 to justify customers' spending more, a bit like F5 trying to tell people they have to buy new hardware, so they obsolete all the old hardware and then force customers to buy it again. Mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. And that's something Cisco does in the campus and it's, it, everybody does it. I'm just using F5 and Cisco as an example, right? Sure. Yep. Um, but I just feel like that's what's happening here. This isn't necessary for the majority of customers. There's a few customers who might get something out of it, but I'm not convinced that there's a, a killer use case. Am I wrong? Not really. I mean, uh,
0: Wi-Fi 7 is promising peak rates of up to 40 gigabits per second, uh, plus new features. There's something called multi-link operation. Essentially, it can aggregate data across two bands simultaneously, so like 2.5 and 5. Uh, Supposedly, it gives you better performance. There's also uh, something we we actually talk about this in the Tech Bytes if you want to stick around for that to find out the Mm deal around Wi-Fi 7 that is uh, a performance optimization technique. Um, So there are are improvements to Wi-Fi 7, are they that necessary? I don't know. And if it means you also have to think about pulling out all of your old uh, access switches because you need faster, uh, more powerful switches to handle all of this new capacity and mm-hmm. also power the APs, that's a decision you're going to have to make. But uh, there are some folks who like to stay abreast of the latest APs, and so uh, vendors are rolling them out.
1: Yeah, and but it also gives you a chance for the salespeople to ring you up and say, have you got Wi-Fi 7 yet? Exactly. <laughs> in, in which case, you should say, why? Don't just buy it because it's the latest, you know. It's like having, you know, Mac OS 17.4. Do you need it? If you don't, don't. Right. don't, don't. I, yeah. I feel like
0: there was a significant advance between Wi-Fi 4 and Wi-Fi 5, and they had different n- names yeah. back then before we switched to this. Um, Wi-Fi yeah. 6 and 6E, also uh, the 6E yeah. adding that extra spectrum is great. Uh, but I feel like the, the, other, the, the generations are coming fast and furious. So uh, if, if it was me, I wouldn't be rushing. But then again, you know. It's up to everybody else to decide. So, but uh, yeah, mm. make make sure you're definitely it's... looking it over before you jump
1: in. Well, Deloro says there'll be a flurry of Wi-Fi seven APs announced in January, that is February now. So, and they think that that's actually going to drive it up. But another thing that I will note is Deloro put out a blog post this week said that only seven percent of Ethernet ports are multi-gig. That is the two point five and five gigs. So remember uh. all the kerfuffle we had about. How two point five gig and five gig is gonna transform the campus and everybody's gonna be it didn't, as I said. I just wanna I just wanna brag about that for a minute and say, remember when we put that on the spreadsheet, I said two point five and five G five gigabit Ethernet is a bust and that's what it is. Waste of time.
0: Congratulations.
1: I know, I am. Sometimes I get it right. Sometimes you Not get it all right. the time. <laughs>
0: Uh, And by the way, we also have the Heavy Wireless podcast uh, where they are also talking about Wi-Fi 7. So if you want to also dive into that, then you have that option with the the Heavy Wireless folks. Mm Mm-hmm. Alright, we'll move on. Uh, some news on the chip manufacturing front. There's a concerted effort by the U.S. to re- revitalize its semiconductor industrial capacity. In that vein, the South Korean chipmaker SK Hynix has reportedly chosen the U.S. state of Indiana as the site for a new packaging facility that will, according to Reuters, be used to stack random access memory chips into high-bandwidth memory chips, and then those high-bandwidth memory chips will then be shipped elsewhere to be integrated with GPUs and other silicon. Uh, as of our recording, SK Hynix hasn't officially declared Indiana the winner for a $16 billion facility. The U.S. state of Arizona is also in contention. Uh, I want to make a related note. Intel says it's delaying construction on a proposed 20 billion chip manufacturing site in the U.S. state of Ohio. According to Reuters, Intel is citing market challenges and the slow rollout of U.S. government grants for the delay. Uh, Chip production was supposed to start in 2025, but it now looks like actual construction may not be completed until 2026. Uh, So, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> reshoring give no, it no,
0: got- and take, reshoring taketh away
1: yeah well I was I was going to say like there's a lot going on here so and it's all geopolitical so there's a few things to note here SK Hynix is trying is setting up fabs in the USA but it's also doing them in Europe so everything that you hear here for the U.S. is just because we're often easier to access articles about the U.S. situation. But if you do and do a search, you'll find that SK Hynix is actually boosting investments in Europe just as much Uh as it is the U.S. And with relation to exactly that, is that there is a South Korean political situation going on here south korean companies are at least partly political and they receive substantial support from the south korean government and work closely together if you go back and look at the history of south korean companies and research the concept of a chaebol which is a south korean conglomerate and they yep. used to get work very closely and get preferential terms and exploit the workers really quite ruthlessly with government support and uh that's all changing but if i'm south korea and i'm looking at north korea flexing its military might sending ammunition to russia and south korean government must be looking at the tsmc and the taiwan situation and noticing that taiwan's got a very good conti- you know way of getting the us you know, like Getting that getting protection from the US, yes. <laughs> yeah, and in a geopolitical context. So if you want the US and the and the NATO alliance to protect you, then creating a dependency isn't a bad idea to strengthen the bond, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's not the only thing you need to be sure that your allies will come and defend you in a in a case of war. But having someone who's in control of all the all of the chip production plants, and there's a lot of them in South Korea. So Almost all of the DRAM is made in Japan and South Korea today. And as they point out here, once they make those chips, they then go somewhere else to be packaged. Usually it's China, but increasingly it's the Philippines and so forth. And Taiwan, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think this is as much a geopolitical move for SK Hynix. Intel, of course, they've got real problems. Their financial results this quarter, we talked about them last week, not looking good. But in particular, what's happening here is Intel is going to slow roll on its commitments to build fabs because it's not signing up anybody to re- to to use those fabs. If I'm looking to make chips, why am I choosing Intel? And that is not at all clear. Intel's got money. It's relying on free handouts to build them. It's relying on its brand and you know strong government relationships and so forth. But at this particular point in time, the growth in its manufacturing to third parties, I think it went from like 170 million to like 250 million in the last financial results. Mm -hmm. That is not like that's growth, but that's not you know move the needle. Justify spending 30 billion dollars growth right so i i put it to you that intel says um we're slowing it down slating market challenges what they're actually having is a sales challenge i think finding customers to move their fabrication to intel is going to be a while but more importantly intel's also struggling with its cpus and its gpus amd's results were on fire they're taking market share from intel intel's got other problems here and they're not winning on this fabrication plant front, so we'll see. We'll see.
0: Yeah, my guess is it's also a little bit of this, uh, you know, sort of high stakes poker of waiting for that government money. Maybe you slow down the construction a little bit and see if you can shake a little bit more of that cash <laughs> loose uh, that yeah. Intel needs. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, this is an aspect, yeah. For sure. The,
0: the political aspect is also interesting. It, there's a Fortune article in the show notes that you may want to check out, where a U.S. senator from Indiana who was like instrumental in trying to bring SK Hynix in, was essentially saying, we have a tiny chip manufacturing industry in Indiana, so any company that comes here will have my full attention. Like, you will Hmm. have a U.S. senator in your back pocket if you build a fab here. So uh, lots of political aspects to this as well. Yeah. Yeah, if I could, I'd also like to put a prediction on the spreadsheet regarding chip plants being built in places like Arizona in the U.S. West. Uh, water is essential in the manufacturing process. Arizona is a desert. Uh, there are already issues arising in Arizona's agricultural sector about things like dropping water tables, rising costs of water and water shortages because of climate change. I kind of wonder if like five years from now, if some of these chip projects are abandoned because it turns out there's not
1: enough water in the desert. I just thought I'd put that on the spreadsheet. Yeah, we've talked about that on and off over the last, I think I raised it six or seven years ago, and we keep revisiting it every couple of years. <laughs> um, but somebody wrote in and to me, I don't know, the last time we raised it, or maybe the time before last, and said like, oh, they recirculate all the water, they reprocess it. I'm unconvinced. I'm like you. I don't think there's enough water in, a, in certain places where you want to do this. And um, I'm also, Arizona, is that on the earthquake fault line as well? Uh, no, not like California. No. No okay, so the the ground stability is less of a concern, so maybe that's the thing. I don't know much about u s geography and um whatever, but yeah, I'd say water is a main issue. These things use millions of litres per day to wash and rinse and you know clean and all that sort of stuff, and it has to be treated. When you treat water, you use water more water to get pure water. Mm-hmm. I don't know If that makes sense, you yes. don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's right. it's not like you take one liter and you purify it, and you've got one liter. You use like ten liters of water to purify one liter, and that's kind of where we're at. Right. So we'll see. I guess we'll see.
0: Yes. I just uh, putting it on the spreadsheet. Uh, companies walking away from developing chip manufacturing in Arizona because of water issues.
1: Uh, but uh, curious well, climate change is real. Climate change is real. It's, it's not as bad as it's going to be uh, unless we start doing something about it. I'm I'm fairly convinced of that. Yeah.
0: All right, uh, moving on, a new study is out that looks at the impact of return-to-office policies on company profits and employee satisfaction. Post-pandemic, many companies required employees to return to the office, saying it would be better for productivity, for company culture, and for the bottom line. There is a new paper from researchers at the University of Pittsburgh that says those justifications have not played out. The study compared companies with and without return-to-office or RTO policies and found, quote, firms with mandatory RTO plans do not experience significant changes in profitability and market values relative to non RTO. RTO firms. It also found, quote, significant declines in employees' ratings of overall job satisfaction, work-life balance, senior management, and corporate culture after a firm announced an RTO mandate. The study concludes that managers are using RTO to reassert control over the workforce and use employees as scapegoats if the firm doesn't actually perform fiscally.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm involved with that. <laughs> We demand everybody returns to the office and they return to the office and the results are bad. Well, it's not my fault. It's yes, uh, <laughs> these dang employees. These employees who don't want to work. You know, Lazy so whiners. So one of the things that I'm starting to realize is that all of the articles that we see around return to office mandates are are the office work equivalent of a car accident. Everybody wants to get a you know, or dump boli- dump politicians saying something stupid. They always get written up, right? Uh-huh. And we saw one recently where the the CEO of WebND recorded a video and he basically said, "If you don't come into the office, we're gonna fire you," right? Uh-huh. In the worst possible way, like, <laughs> and the whole creepy U.S. high school corporate you know corporate thing, <laughs> put together this video like it's a high school musical. It was uh-huh. terrible. Um. So what we have is the press continually publishing a stream of reports about these sort of legacy, out-of-touch CEOs. They're usually boomers, you know, demanding that workers get back in the office, right? Uh And about six months later, we get a regretful article published somewhere on the lowdown in a human resources magazine that nobody (laughs) reads, and they're saying, we're really sorry about our return to office mandate, and we wish you'd done it differently. Yeah. And you read it, and you go like, Yeah, yeah. All of our good staff started leaving. People hated the company and stopped working efficiently. And now we don't know how to have remote workers and we don't know. We can't go back because we don't want to lose our ego. Like if we say everybody can go remote now, we look like idiots and we don't want to look like idiots because we're people in charge, right? Yep. It's usually one of those four things or some combination of those four things. Is that that reasonable? It it resonates with me. It resonates. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I guess the flip side here is you always want to remember when a company CEO says things- that he might just be saying he or she might just be saying things because they have to say things, right? Mm-hmm. You don't talk to a CEO and he goes like, man, our financial results are trash and we don't even have a clue what's going on. They never say that. They always say, we're having a challenging quarter, but we know what's going wrong. We've done the they, and it's all just things that they say. You, they say what you expected to say. So this is your regular reminder that when your company CEO says their most important resource is people, it's just one of those. Everyone knows that they don't actually mean it. They hate you, um, and it costs them nothing to say things that they think people want to hear. So yes. just remember that um, your employer probably hates you, and if they could get rid of you, they would. That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what a note. <laughs> 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 all right, two stories to go before we wrap. Uh, Microsoft released financial results for the second quarter of its fiscal year, 2024. The company had revenues of $62 billion, up 18% year over year, and net income of almost $22 billion, up 33% year over year. Revenues were up across all the business units, and can you guess what force Microsoft attributes for its successful quarter? I'll give you a hint. It's a two-letter word.
1: Uh, PCs? AI. <laughs> <laughs> it's AI yeah. all the way. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on here. I think Microsoft's got a really good story about it continues to replace its legacy business with new business. So, it's no longer making, you know, all of its revenue from Microsoft Office and Microsoft Windows, which it was, you know, 10 years ago, 15 yeah. years ago. And off-prem cloud and AAI, of course, are the two core components of a growth strategy. So they can say, look, there's our legacy business still spinning off cash like a, someone robbed a bank, right? Uh-huh. But that's not our future. We know that that's a dead business. So over here, we're building off-prem cloud. Microsoft's still sinking $100 billion a year into its off-prem cloud. It's not making a profit. If you regard the $100 billion of CapEx spend every year as a cost, then it's no way. But it is making money in the share price because it's got this cloud and it's building this massive business, it's increasing the capital value of the company. So spending a billion dollars a quarter, uh, sorry, a hundred billion dollars a year in, you know, building out Azure with more data centers and more computers and all that sort of stuff um, is definitely going to build a business that's worth 500 billion. So if you spend a hundred billion and you get 250 billion added to the company, well, that was money well spent. Shareholders will think you're great. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. I don't think the AI is shaking out the way it wants. I think they spent a lot of money and it's not making a profit, but it's future shareholders that think better. And I think that whole story around AI in particular is very popular with investors. Can this with Google, for example, this week who uh, lost 6% of their share price when their advertising revenue shrank, but their AI story is really weak and their cloud story. Reasonably weak, Uh right? uh Then, you know, Google Cloud generated sales of 9.2 billion, but lost 863 million of that. Wow. So nearly 10% of its Google Cloud revenue was a loss. Like it's losing uh, straight to the bottom line loss. So that Uh doesn't include the capital spend, right? So I think there's just a, uh, it's just about the story. Right now, investors aren't really investing on fundamentals. When they buy shares in Apple or Microsoft or Google or, you know, Facebook, they're buying in on the pitch. And that's what we're seeing here is Microsoft's got a really good story and they're backing it up with some results that don't go against the story. Whereas Google, not so great. Google's down a whole whole, whole bunch.
0: I agree that uh tech executives can just say AI and investors are like, Great, love it. Don't know what it is, love it though. Like to see the AI. Keep it going. Yeah. Ramp it up. You've
1: got an AI story, that's good. Well yeah, buy tell, some tell more. Tell me of that the story. Stuff. I like the story.
0: Yeah. It makes me it makes well, me think about Google's of AI going up.
1: story, not so great, right? And they really should have been there. Uh, so I think, you know, if for that point of view if you're investors, say it. Yeah. Uh,
0: one note that jumped out at me, I read it in a news story about Satya Nadala saying that uh, they are anticipating that the days of customers looking to optimize their cloud spending, i.e. spend less in the cloud, are coming to an end. Uh, so I guess they're they're getting confident that customers are going to start spending more in cloud and uh, stop worrying about trying to rationalize cloud spend. I don't know if that's just I'd, the kind of thing I'll, you say I'll, to your analysts, but...
1: Uh, <laughs> I'll lay I'll that bet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the other side of that because I think the reverse of that is true. I think, for you know, I'll, I'll give you 10 to 1 odds. <laughs> All right. Yes. <laughs> because uh, I'm not so sure. I, I think that a- unless Azure is taking business from other people, I think Azure is going to start to wind down. AWS is certainly struggling. And the glory days around, you know, building out the cloud and so forth. The growth is slowing. They're having to spend more and more money into mm-hmm. these clouds to keep them you know, to scale them out and so forth. And as they build more and more of them, there's no cheap ways to do cloud. Everything that they do with building our data centers now is expensive. You know, silicon's getting more expensive. They need more of it. They need AI silicon plus CPUs, plus GPUs, plus uh-huh. storage, plus, right? And so I don't think you can say that uh, because I also think that companies are getting very, very careful about what they're spending on. We're seeing various... Um, research pieces come out from all the analyst companies that I sort of follow saying, you know, enterprises are very concerned about their cloud spend. They're very worried about it. And uh, I think the reverse is going to be true. Not that it's going to slow, not that it's going to disappear, but just that people are looking at how much they're spending and that's going to continue. That's going to be a priority because there's just so much money being spent in the cloud. Yeah. And for very little. They look at their on-prem and go, like, I'm getting the same out of my on-prem as I do in the cloud. Why, you know? Maybe we need to be smarter.
0: I, my assumption is that there will be sort of an AI boomlet where companies start spending more on public cloud that is somehow attached to AI, and then they will mm. realize it's not delivering in the returns they expected, and they are spending more money than they had anticipated, and we will get the AI rationalization, just like we're getting the public cloud mm. rationalization. But in the meantime, uh, the numbers look up uh, for the AI story, so maybe that's what's happening.
1: Yeah, I think there is some money there, but I'm not sure. I think it's just going to be more, uh, that, that it's a bit more finely balanced. But of course, if he had said, it's not coming, you know, we're seeing spending slow and get steadier, you know. <laughs> not the message so maybe that between the Wall Street likes to hear, yes. <laughs> no, he's probably got reasons to say it, but I'm not necessarily convinced that it's true. Yeah.
0: All right, our last story is a shaggy dog story. The government of Japan is no longer mandating the use of 3.5-inch hard disks and CD-ROMs for some businesses and government agencies to deliver information to the government. Japanese law had specified that data be submitted on hard disks and CD-ROMs. Now Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry has begun to relax that requirement in large part because these disks are getting harder to come by and have limited storage capacity. What I love about this
1: is it's because the disks are hard to come by, Drew. (laughs) <laughs> it's like they'd still do it if they had a lot of discs. <laughs> you read between the lines, and that's what you get out of this article, yep. right? Is that yeah? Well, that's fine. Like you know, you you say, but it's only because the discs are gone that we don't. <laughs> which is which is you know, there's a whole line here about the future is unevenly distributed and all that sort of stuff. Yes. Uh, but uh, bureaucracies, different countries have different you know sort of approaches to bureaucracy and different. Even down to departments inside of bureaucracy. Some of them will be quite modern and others will be quite retro. It just depends on various situations and what they do. Um, but it is deeply amusing that you could you had to submit data on hard disks and CD-ROMs or floppy disks and CD-ROMs in 2024. That's that seems to boggle my mind more than I more than I care to imagine. Yes. Old media well, dies
0: hard. I'll say that. <laughs> All right, that wraps up the news portion. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet. We're going to be talking about its Wi-Fi 7 APs and what to look for in the latest standard that's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking Wi-Fi 7. This is the latest iteration of the wireless standard from the Wi-Fi Alliance. So Wi-Fi 6 brought significant increases in throughput and performance. A Wi-Fi 6E made 6 gigahertz spectrum available, at least in the US. So what does Wi-Fi 7 bring to the table, and is it worth going through an upgrade? We're going to get details from sponsor Fortinet. And yes, Fortinet has a networking portfolio that includes wired and wireless gear, Chris Hins, a Senior Director of Product Marketing at Fortinet, is here to take us through the details of Wi-Fi 7. Uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast. So can you just give us the overview of what's new in this latest standard?
2: Sure, happy to. Thank you very much for having me. So, as is often the case, especially with the more modern Wi-Fi standards, there's a focus not just on raw speed, but with reliability, overall capacity, as well as just the performance that people want. So, if you kind of look at the main things that are coming in Wi-Fi 7, I usually focus on four main ones. One of them is, we do get a new data rate. This happens regularly. There's a lot of push for figuring out new and better ways that we can transmit and receive data quickly so you may hear a lot of people talking about 4k qualms that's that's the new data rate even faster data that we're going to get in addition to that we have new wider channels you made that reference for example to the six gigahertz space opening up so we want to be able to leverage some of that wide open space that we have and these new wider channels are a good way to do that Two other interesting new things that have come along that I think are very distinct to Wi-Fi 7, because you could argue that, oh, we've done wider channels before, oh, we've done new data rates before. One of these is multi-link operation, the idea that you can actually have a client attached across multiple bands, considered all to be on all those bands at the same time. And the other is kind of an interference mitigation plan via puncturing. And we may talk a little bit more about puncturing, but I don't wanna go too big of a technical deep dive right now. This is paired with some other additions and changes throughout the spec to really make Wi Fi 7 a very interesting standard for people to move to.
0: Okay, so what features do you think might be the most compelling for network engineers to get them to go through an upgrade, particularly if they've already done the dance with Wi Fi 6 and 6E?
2: Now, I made the comment about wider channels having existed before. Uh And historically, people have kind of given a little bit of the side eye to those wider channels because, yeah, you know, you could use them, but they were somewhat unreliable. You know, one thing that would happen is if there was a little bit of interference, say, on your upper half of your wider channel, you were supposed to roll back. And you almost lost half of your throughput, and you were supposed to avoid that interference. Mm-hmm. Now, we know that this sort of avoidance is something that just is part of being in an unlicensed band, but they did something pretty cool with Wi-Fi 7. We already had this idea of segmenting the band into subcarriers and, and putting signals on those subcarriers before. But they said, well, why don't we do what they've called puncturing? And we can just kind of puncture out that piece of the channel that has interference. And we're going to transmit on all the subcarriers where there isn't interference. So now that wider channel can really be leveraged more often. And there's a better reliability to the throughput I can get from that wider channel because I'm not going to be rolling back and losing half that throughput every now and again anytime there's a little
0: spike of interference. So does this mean I'm getting more throughput out of this or just a more reliable connection or both?
2: It's a little bit of both. If you think about it is a more reliable connection. But when you kind of think about what we had to do in the past, We truly did lose bandwidth every time that we had to lose that upper piece. Mm -hmm. So by virtue of now puncturing, I am truly gaining throughput. This was sort of lost spectrum that I wasn't using before that now I am using. And if I pair this with the idea that we had back in Wi-Fi 6, where I had OFDMA, where I could have different clients all accessing different parts of those subcarriers at different times, mm-hmm. now I can say, okay, well, some of these clients are down here, and then some of you guys, you're on the other side of the interferer. And I'm just making much, much more efficient use of my spectrum, which really does me, my aggregate system has higher throughput.
0: Now, you mentioned uh, unlicensed spectrum, and that's, I guess, one of the potential downsides of the 6 gigahertz spectrum, and that it is unlicensed, so obviously anyone can use it, and I guess that's the issue around this potential for interference?
2: Well, you know, the reality is... <laughs> They're all unlicensed <laughs> bands. <laughs> so so these interferers have always been here. And, you know, every time we move into a band, Wi-Fi has had to deal with this. Uh-huh. I think that this new mechanism just creates a really interesting way to work around it without as big of a hit. As what we had before and then you additionally have you know you'd be said well why do people care why do people want to move in addition to this kind of cool use of these wider channels we also have something called multi-length that i talked about this idea that now i can operate a bss that if i talk at the high level you can think of it as that bss now spans multiple bands so this now means that if i've got a client that you know attached to the ap and it's associated and something changes with that client. Maybe, well, maybe like you and I, suddenly we're doing a, a podcast, where we got streaming audio and I wasn't just watching email anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I really had a difference in throughput when we started doing this on my laptop. And in the past, if I had been on a particular band that man, maybe it had enough throughput to do you know, my email, but it was going to get kind of constrained doing voice and maybe I was going to start getting that robotic voice as the uh, bandwidth cut in and out. We don't have that. I can just seamlessly kind of move and use another band where there's more throughput because I'm actually leveraging all bands at the same time for this SSID. That's a really cool capability, and it allows us to make more flexible use, again, of the bandwidth available to us.
0: And that flexibility comes based on sort of the performance characteristics that the AP is sensing from the client at the time? That it can say, okay, I need to move you because it looks like you're trying to get more through or you need a faster rate?
2: Correct. The AP and the client can kind of coordinate information to kind of say, well, you know what, maybe I made my initial connection on the 2.4 band, which obviously gets a a lot of negative press these days because there's so much noise there. But maybe that was good enough for what I was doing. And then both sides of the equation just kind of say, yeah, you know, I don't think I want to be here anymore. I'm going to move up and start transmitting on five or even six gig for those clients that support
0: it. Now, is there any kind of penalty uh, to doing this switch because I may have to reconnect or reassociate with an AP? Well,
2: that's the beauty. You know, before you would think of that as a roam, right? Because I left one band and I went to another and, and technically... We thought of those as being distinct entities. With multi-link operation, this is no longer viewed as two distinct entities. As far as the client is concerned, I truly am operating across multiple different pieces of the spectrum, so I can make that move without suffering any additional hits for overhead.
0: Okay, so I think you've sort of made the case for why Wi-Fi 7 may be appealing to folks, but are there additional security or network implications that people should also be considering if they are going to adopt Wi-Fi 7?
2: Yeah, there are any time that you have any sort of new technology coming on board, what we see is that there are become new applications, new use cases, new drivers that people want to use the network for now that they have this available bandwidth and these capabilities. And whenever you start to have new clients, new things, new usage patterns, that can really cause some security holes because you may not have had security in place to really deal with that previously. You're going to want to ensure that you revisit and evaluate you know, any security that you have in place to ensure that you are handling this correctly. We always kind of look at this as having security at the core of the network. It's not something you ever want to just patch onto the side because when you are, are taking much more of a patch view of things, then when new technology pops in, your patch isn't integrated into that. In addition, there are some real network implications, as you kind of hinted at. We talked a lot about the throughput here. And when you think about three bands all operating, wider channel set to more efficient use. There's a very real chance that your wired network that you've had in place previously may not be able to keep up with the throughput that you're going to start getting out of a Wi-Fi 7 access point. So you're probably going to have to take a look at your wired infrastructure, see what you need to do there to increase its capacity. Another thing, and, and you know, this is something that I think is familiar for all those installers out there who've been installing Wi-Fi every time we have a generational change, is the power needs for those access points, they never seem to go down. They only go up. And so you may have switching out there that maybe it has the capacity on the link but maybe it doesn't have the overall POE capabilities needed. You know, we're in the latest state of the art. You're looking at, you know, 90-watt POE being the sort of thing you might want at the edge if you're going to be running Wi-Fi 7. So we really see this as when you're making this technology shift to Wi-Fi 7, you really are probably going to want to look at everything that you have in your network and evaluate what you need to upgrade here and ensure that everything from the wireless level to the wired to the security is all prepared for this shift in use.
0: So can you talk a little bit about what you think the impact could be on the network side, particularly if, you know, I, I decided to go from, like, my one gig access switches to five? Or do I need to go to 10 if I'm going to do seven? Or
2: I would recommend giving a real hard look at 10. Now, people can understand their environments, and maybe they know that they're doing a little bit more beep and scan traffic, so they may not have an application, but I'll tell you one thing I always tell people, anytime you have new capabilities at the very edge, there's likely gonna be an, an application or a use that someone in the company is going to want to start to put because they know that there's been a technology refresh. Mm-hmm. So I always consider it sort of dangerous to try and go halfway on these sorts of things because the last thing you want to do is, to your point, maybe you upgrade to M gig. Maybe you you say, well, I'm going to upgrade, but I'm just going to put in 2.5 gig mm-hmm. on my wired because I think that's going to be fine. Well, what happens if you know a year down the line, someone on, let's say, I'll point at someone with my own hat, someone. On on the marketing side, (laughs) comes up with a really cool idea for how to use that network. And that's going to be very bandwidth intensive. And now the AP can keep up, but those switches you just bought can't. So you got to future-proof and think this through. And the fact that you're going to be in here redesigning the network potentially for Wi-Fi 7 seems like a perfect time to get that right and look into the future on what some of the usage patterns are going to look like.
0: Okay, so if you are thinking about an upgrade to Wi-Fi 7, don't skimp on the wired side of the house.
2: Nope. I think you got to really be honest with yourself on what this is going to take.
0: Obviously, Fortinet is best known as a security company. What does Fortinet bring security-wise into the wireless LAN realm?
2: I think sometimes people think that our wireless products 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 are just another separate silo in a networking portfolio. But that's really not the case with Fortinet. We have been pushing this idea of kind of the convergence of network and security for a while. And for us, what that means is the wireless controller, which is a concept that has been around now for, for decades in the wireless space. And, you know, sometimes people talk about it being in the cloud. Sometimes it's, you know, the controller distributed across everything. But for us that controller functionality is actually embedded into our firewall so that means that you have networking and security truly brought together in one and it also now means that even as uses change on your wireless and you get that increased throughput The firewall is already natively understanding that wireless It's coming back and being understood by a firewall and all that context is built straight in. And that's a really different philosophy towards things. It helps with these sorts of migrations. It helps ensure that you have the right configuration across everything, because we're starting to see that that old siloed approach, you know, where the the networking guys and the security guys never speak to each other and, and, you know, they may kick each other in the shins when they pass in the hallway that's just not viable anymore. And so... This approach that we have where we bring it all together with the firewall as a controller, we believe that's really the path forward for everybody.
0: Now, having a firewall as a controller, does that have implications for how I might be segmenting my network, making sure specific wireless devices are on specific segments of the network as opposed to having full access?
2: Yeah, you know, we definitely encourage people to give good thought to that. And one of the things that you can do with a firewall as your controller is something that we do. We call it FortaLink NAC. Essentially what it is, is it's a built-in, basically, NAC functionality to do exactly what you just talked about. Mm -hmm. Because we're a firewall, it's very easy for us to profile and understand traffic and and devices that are attaching, be they wired or wireless, and then put them in the right security context natively because that's all built in. When you have that understanding and that level of deep packet inspection, which of course we have being a firewall built in and extended all the way to the edge, it's very simple for us to put the right security context on every client as they come on board.
0: Okay, well, unfortunately, we're running out of time because I've Got more questions and there's a lot more to talk about about Wi-Fi 7. But thank you, Chris, for coming in and walking us through this. If you folks are interested in getting more information about what Fortinet's doing with Wi-Fi and their Wi-Fi 7 solution, uh, there's lots of links in the show notes that accompany this podcast. And there's also going to be a blog we'll link to from Fortinet about helping you get ready uh, for Wi-Fi 7. Thanks again, Chris, for being here. And thanks again to Fortinet for being a sponsor. And of course, thanks to you, the listeners, for being here as well. If you like this episode, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts in our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can join us on the Packet Pusher Slack if you want to hang out with other network engineers. You can hear us on Spotify. You
1: can join us on LinkedIn. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.